bringing you up to speed on the latest in conservation, science, and responsible hunting in Canada. Hey everyone, it's Mark Hall, and you're listening to the Round Canada Podcast. Well, guys, thanks for joining me on the Round Canada podcast. This is the Good first first time right? I've had uh, guests on Round Canada podcast. I think people are going to uh, enjoy having uh, Lee Foot and Matt Besco on. You were just on the Round Canada last episode of the Round Canada podcast. So um, this is cool. We've had some great conversations just via email since since that podcast. So I thought this would be... Uh, a lot of fun to get your guys' thoughts and knowledge on some of these topics that are things that are going on in in science and conservation and responsible hunting in Canada. So we're here to keep yes. you honest, Mark. <laughs> I've, a few people have messaged me since since you were on the, the Hunter Conservationist podcast, and they're like, "Wow, oh, we really like those guys," and and uh, they use the words uh, "wise." Um, so I I wasn't sure if I was included in that or if it was like the host. Yeah, it, it, and those it's not people. us. No, no, that, but, no, it's not us. It's you. That would be dumb, dumb and dumb. But that's one of those <laughs> things with the English language, right? Like, hey, those were a couple of wise guys on your show, or there were a couple of wise yeah. guys, right? Like, it's all a, it's all in the inflection, which doesn't come across in a text yeah. that a few of my few, few few of our listeners sent us. So I don't know, but I'm looking forward to the conversation. So. Um, Good. So Me too. the first story here is uh, one that I came across just recently about um, some preliminary results uh, that are about to be published. Uh, I, I, the way I understand this um, is they're researchers from Saskatchewan, University of Saskatchewan, but they were looking at data from the U.S. on white-tailed deer, and their preliminary research is showing that white-tailed deer uh, in the U S have been exposed to, or have had COVID-19. And so obviously, uh, the concerns are, um, you know, whether or not, um, the, the, the deer could actually be a reservoir for COVID-19 being able to spread it, infect other deer or cattle or continue to reinfect um, people like in uh, urban, you know, urban areas, the urban deer sort of thing. Um, I understand from digging into this a little bit that there was research done a number of years ago. Um, I think it was lab research, but deer were infected with the SARS um the SARS virus uh, a number of years ago. So, mm-hmm. um, geez, just kind of when we got talking about chronic wasting disease and white-tailed deer, now we're talking about, you know, the potential. These are preliminary results of, you know, um, them being potential carriers of COVID. So I, I'm not I'm not particularly surprised, Mark. Uh, you know, zoonoses as of late, uh, tend to be, you know, really problematic for us. And we're just learning more and more about CWD. And now we have, you know, uh, SARS and COVID that are involved. Uh, I think we need to look at this in context. The research has found that there was up to a 33%, so a third 
of these deer had antibodies over four states. And we have to remember that the density of deer usually, especially in the northeastern U.S., is quite high. And, and as for them being a reservoir, you know, uh, in terms of transmissibility, we don't know that yet. I, I think the probability of the deer here out west having that disease is fairly remote. But, you know, that being said, I wouldn't mind, you know, as part of my program, institute a bit of testing here because that's readily available. Um, but, you know, uh, it's really new. Um, and, you know, what the researchers said is that it could come from a variety of different sources, uh, either wastewater or contact with other uh, vectors, other animals, people, and so forth. Um, but this is a very interesting development in terms of zoonoses. And, and my prediction would be is that I think we're going to start looking at more and more zoonoses that are going to appear in wildlife. And I think these are going to be problematic for biodiversity in the future. Yeah, I, have, I, would, I would chime in and say one of the real problems, if you ever tried to get a deer to wear a mask, those little hooves, they just can't <laughs> put them on properly. No, not to make too much light of it, the fact that they have antibodies suggests that they are mounting resistance to the whatever insult uh, COVID that they got. To date, we've there's been no reports that I've heard about of, of deer manifesting symptoms. No. So it would seem a little far-fetched to think that they might be a, a super spreader agent. I'm not a, I'm not a virologist, but uh, the fact that they're not showing symptoms, and, and they probably have antibodies to all sorts of things that are just passing through their world and the a good immune system mounts a resistance and shows that in, in relictual form for a long time so that doesn't worry me too much uh, doc, dr margo pibus here uh our provincial wildlife health uh specialist is you know i brought it to her attention as soon as i heard about the research and and uh she wasn't you know terribly uh surprised at all about this and she at this time felt that the risk was pretty minimal, uh, both of deer being a reservoir for the transmissibility of COVID and, uh, and also population level effects on deer. Um, because of the lack of symptoms, she doesn't feel that it's, it's such a problematic. And as Lee said, they probably show antibodies to a number. Of yeah, um, I mean, given that we haven't probably done a lot of research testing them for for other things or right. things that uh, humans have had probably nobody's ever thought about going geez I wonder if you know deer uh, you know have been been exposed to this and just in the COVID um, pandemic over the last year of course we've heard cases about um, some of the big cats and zoos and stuff uh, contracting it so I'm sure that's probably yeah. Um, caught researchers, you know, attention, uh, you know, for for a number of different guilds of, of wildlife species, and you know, one of the things that if if white tails, sorry, if white tails start seeing, if we start seeing, you know, antibodies of Ebola <laughs> or dengue and white tails, then then we'll get worried. The know, main maybe. thing is 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 where is what you go looking for if you, if you don't look for it you'll never be aware of it to contextualize this disease they would need to do some broad spectrum examinations of all the antibodies that are present there it might just be something that's entered their world they've handled it very well interestingly that the lack of die-off suggests that they must be handling yeah, it fairly yeah. well no at, at least at this point um what what little little we um we, we know about it right now and um 
There was also an article came out in uh, CBC published it. Uh, it was actually last month, um, a couple of weeks old, but uh, old. But it was called "Chronic Wasting Disease Threatens Deer, Elk, Maybe Humans." New research says, and this uh, article's kind of got like like there's a couple of things embedded in here which which I th I thought was kind of interesting. So it's um, the Canadian Agriculture or Ag. Agri-Food Policy Institute has kind of come out and um, glommed on to some research that's come out of uh, Alberta and Saskatchewan and as a federal agency they're recommending, um, I guess they just learned about CWD, um, they're recommending a, a, <laughs> uh, a deer call across a wide swath of the prairies. and. So that that's kind of the first part about it. Uh, I tweeted this uh, about a week ago, and Dr. Ryan Brook from um, the uh, University U of S in Saskatchewan, we uh, we had him on the show um, a while back talking about the invasive wild pigs. Well, he uh, I believe he was part of the Saskatoon Working Group. Um, there was one in Edmonton as well ten years ago. There was a proposal by a number of proponents put forth to the federal government actually recommending a national policy and control strategy for CWD as the concerns were ramping up and um, Dr. Brooke had let me know like hey this is something that was 10 years ago and it was never yeah. implemented at the federal level they never they never in, took on in yeah. terms of an active yeah, in terms of active management, um, Alberta was, I, I believe, the first to, well, Saskatchewan was involved as well, but we we started to cull deer, deer herds around uh, nodes of positive um, occurrences in CWD, and then we implemented a zone concept where if we had a 10-kilometer radius uh, plot around uh, the nearest positive, then we removed the deer, depopulated that area. Uh, we did it quite extensively for three or four year period. We did slow the rate of, of progression from east to west, and we also lowered the prevalence within those deer populations. We stopped but, in 2008 for a number of reasons, and since then prevalence rates have gone up significantly. Sorry, Lee, go ahead. I was going to say that I understand most, most provincial agencies have their hands tied somewhat by an outcry from hunting organizations and others. It's like trying to put out a forest fire by, by quenching half the fire and then stepping back and saying, we did half of it. Of course, the logical thing is the spread will pick back up and continue. You never get to snuff it out. I can go out on a limb and say this, that there are really two ways we know that uh, we'll light a serious fire under the depopulation. One is if humans, we show a direct linked of CWD jumping to humans through the food supply. The second is if cattle can show an ability to contract it in serious numbers. Either one of those will trigger the black helicopter syndrome, basically, which means taking every animal out, creating wide buffers and maintaining them, sort of like a hoof and mouth disease in Africa, cordon fences, all sorts of crazy stuff. But the, you have to understand the position and the interest that drives this. There, there are billions of dollars involved with cattle, and then there's human lives that are priceless. So either one of those, I think, could activate a much more stringent 
a depopulation of deer. But until that happens, I don't think that there's the public will for this to take place. Probably not. But I think one of the viable options is to, one, uh, reduce prevalence rates in populations that have CWD, especially in bucks over 50%, and also slow the progression from infected to uninfected areas. And that's what we're trying to do right now. And even that is very difficult to do unless you do it intensively and you do it over long periods of time. The issue that we have right now uh, with that management option is, you know, uh, what are we doing that for? Uh, If we're slowing the rates, what are we hoping for? Are we just delaying the inevitable? Are we making it worse now when it's going to end up being worse later? And the answer to that is, you know, we're looking at a variety of new research that's coming online. I know the Alberta Conservation Association and other researchers are looking at funding vaccine studies and uh, looking at potential means by which we can actually, um, at, at scale, cure CWD. If that is a possibility, I'd certainly be interested in some interim measures that would reduce the probability of disease transmission and slow the spread. Right, right, yeah. No, I I, I get that. I I, kind of felt, I mean, it's just a news story. I kind of felt the article was was poorly written. Um, It kind of brought in a little bit of an element of, like, fear-mongering, and we're not quite there yet with the science to justify uh, like you said, this jump to cattle or the or the jump to humans. I think the article failed to um, at least recognize the intensive testing that goes on in Western Canada with the hunters um, submitting samples and getting confirmation. Um, you know, if if their meat you know should be consumed or not. There was sort of no mention of that, uh, which to me kind of made you know the 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 public that would read this kind of think that this this risk is maybe a little bit you know sort of wild westish kind of you know well you know we can we can overstate the risk on some aspects of cwd and but i find that we're understating the risk when it comes to deer population effects and susceptibility and we know from the jurisdictions that have had cwd the longest uh you know wisconsin colorado Uh, Wyoming, those places, we're seeing significant declines in deer and elk populations that have had it for the longest period of time. And I think that should be of great concern to uh, people that care about conservation and, 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 you know, hunting groups in general. And that, I think, is key, especially with the efforts that hunters have, have made with respect to the testing and monitoring of CWD. We, over the last few years in Alberta, we're getting over 10,000 heads per year that are submitted. The mandatory area by which we require hunters to submit samples has grown significantly. We're basically at our limits for disease testing right now, and we're serving on a de facto basis as a food safety inspection agency rather than a, a wildlife monitoring program, which is our intent. So, you know, we're just starting to pilot a program this year by which uh, hunters would obtain their own samples, uh, you know, when they're when they're processing their animals and submit the retropharyngeal lymph nodes as well as the obets. Mark, you, you're uh, you you said a word a little while ago, fear mongering, and uh, Matt is dealing and his agency is dealing with the 
uh, nuts and bolts difficulty of managing this disease and trying to keep it contained and keep it good objective information out there. But it's it's incumbent on the media and the scientists and those that are publishing and us. You know, we're we're on media right now to not pull the the panic button because we we in the past have cried that the sky is falling a little too stringently when it really wasn't. And um, you can only do that so often before you lose all public buy-in and credibility. Uh, the macaque study that gets cited quite often, is, it's a worrisome study. Uh, it's finally reached peer-reviewed status, uh, I'm told, after being mentioned in a, uh, uh, a symposium that macaques fed infected meat were able to contract this, and they being a close analog to humans, being a, an advanced primate, it means it suggests, doesn't mean, it suggests there may be an avenue that we could contract it through consumption. That's a long shot series of, of setups though, and it's the worst case scenario, and there's a tremendous focus put on that, and conclusions are drawn from that that are really not merited until this has been replicated, shown to, it could be a cold fusion scenario for all we know. So we need to go methodically, cautiously, prudently, and keep the pressure on to understand this disease yeah, more. Yeah, exactly. And that was one of the aspects of the paper, which I, which I kind of thought was, you know, maybe jumping ahead a bit too far, but uh, they were talking about that study. It started back in 2006 in Germany, where they were feeding infected meat to these these yeah. these primates. And probably the typical research scenario where they were just like, you know, just stuffing it into them, right? Like, you know, at very, very high levels and, yeah. then, and then trying to see if it, you know, if it um, crosses into, you know, th through and in, into their brain. And so, yeah, the, 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 the macaws were just euthanized just a couple of years ago, even though it started back in 2006. So like Lee said, they're, they're the, the results of that are going to be published soon in the peer-reviewed literature. But in this article, um, it, it basically said, uh, you know, the question, the question uh, was answered with yes, meaning yes, CWD has crossed, um, you know, the barrier from ungulate meat to, to primate. So um, without the you know the full spectrum of of that research to to kind of say something like that right now was was a little bit um i don't know kind of kind of thought it was a little bit too too yeah. early yeah definitely it's premature yeah yeah uh, another element though that wasn't mentioned that i believe is relatively significant is uh, geographically the spread of cwd is not that far away from uh threatened species of caribou in Alberta. Uh, we're not that far away from the you know, southern uh, foothill and mountain populations. And uh, we're w well within 100 kilometers of woodland subpopulations south of Cold Lake. So, you know, they're cervids, they're susceptible to CWD. I think what's going for them in terms of minimizing risk is their behavioral nature. Um, old growth boreal forest, small bands that are existing uh, out there on the landscape, not a lot of contact with deer, um, but, you know, it's still fairly uh, worrisome. Absolutely. I think the most worrisome part of this story for me was, is back in 2006, there was a lab in Germany that was feeding a zoonotic infected 
muscle tissue to primates trying to force it to cross the species barrier. Here we are the last year and a bit going through the COVID-19 pandemic, kind of the same story. And I'm like, what the heck are these research labs doing out there, right? Like, it's like, has anybody said, well, hey, this is great to know if this could happen, but maybe we should stop because of the potential of losing control of this. Like, that set off some big red yeah, flags that's a, that's for a concern. me reading that. Yeah. Well, the, the gold standard within science, especially in lab studies, is the mechanistic causative agent where you can actually control the introduction and then measure the response. The, the less uh, powerful way of doing this is through survey and retrospective stuff, trying to find macaques or humans or whatever that have been infected and then trace backwards. It's, a, it's less attractive in terms of uh, publishability, of rigor of science, and things like that. So, but, you know, I'm not, I understand why they're doing that. It's, it's eminently publishable. It's, it's knowledge for knowledge's sake. Uh, it, it may carry some greater risk that we're aware of now with this amplification aspect. Than, uh, than would be permitted today. It might not get approval yeah. today, in fact. What, what's interesting, though, is, is the perception of risk publicly. And, you know, we have not yet documented a single case of uh, CWD prion uh, infecting a human being and causing chronic wasting disease. That being said, you know, who among us would feed our children, for example, uh, meat from a mule deer that we know has been infected with CWD. So what do we do as a result of, you know, the risk as small as it could be? I still wouldn't, you know, consume that meat myself, nor would I feed, you know, my family with it. I fed Lee lots <laughs> of it, but, you know, it's, yeah. it's too that's, late. That's the two ways to get rid of unwanted guests is either give them the lumpy bed or yeah, <laughs> a little bit of the specially marked package of venison in the corner of the freezer. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, you, you have to have some brain matter in order for it to affect you. So Matt figures I'm a safe oh, candidate. <laughs> okay, well, those, <clears throat> those no. results. No, I, I don't think so. I wouldn't feed anyone, not even Lee. No, uh, uh, CWD How about your dog? How about your dog? No, nope, I wouldn't do that either. So speaking of okay. dogs and the canine family, so there's another story coming out of uh, Stanley Park in Vancouver where uh, another woman was attacked by a coyote uh, last, last week. I think uh, we're up to about 30 people uh, have been attacked since December of last year in Stanley Park, including... About a month ago, a two or three year old, a toddler uh, was attacked and, and bitten by by a coyote. Um, it's pretty bizarre. There's a, uh, uh, the story I read was there's some researchers from, I believe UBC are, have gone in and are setting up trail cameras throughout uh, Stanley Park. Um, you know, trying to figure out what the coyotes are doing, their behavior, ID them, maybe they can catch something, you know, on camera, learn a little bit about, you know, which coyote is doing what, because, you know, I gather from reading this is, you know, people have been sort of studying the coyotes there, and there's individuals that have been in Stanley Park for pushing 10 years now, which is incredibly old for, you know, for a coyote. I think they only live like two, three years old in, in the wild, but I guess life is a little better in Stanley Park. Uh, one of the things they recently picked up on these trail cameras and these studies was 
all these people that were going into Stanley Park at nighttime partying and leaving all their trash and, um, you know, um, alcohol bottles around. And there was a photographer taking pictures of a coyote that was, you know, um, trying to get the last of the drops out of a whiskey bottle. So, of course, they're thinking, well, that's why they're attacking people, right? Because they're, they're a little, little jacked up or something like that. I, I don't know. But um, it's, a, it's a crazy story. I mean the knowledgeable people that have been interviewed about it are saying like this, this is bizarre. Like, you know, they've been there for a long time, but this rash of attacks recently is, is relatively new and people are kind of having a tough time of putting their finger on the causes or, you know, or the cause or, or, or the suite of causes that, that are available. So. You know, it's, it's interesting to me that, the the question I have is is this one coyote or is this coyotes? For example, you can walk through a neighborhood that has 150 domestic dogs in there, but there's one aggressive dog that bites everybody that goes by. If it, 30 bites could have all been generated by one habituated coyote, conceivably. Now they do learn from each other, and the numbers are going up. It sounds like they're they're they've got a, a bunch of them in there, but. Um, yeah, it's it's not that surprising, and also it's such a sensational story. The, the occasional bite that might have happened over time didn't reach critical mass or media attention until recently, I suspect. But um, it's a fairly easy fix if they want to go lethal. It's a much more complex, long-term fix to to uh, train the public and have it, uh, desensitize these coyotes or sensitize these coyotes to humans. The other thing that's quite interesting, I'll tell you a little story from the Deep South real quickly. Um, there were oftentimes they would, anywhere there was a, a large uh, remote swamp or, or hard to get to place, it would sort of spontaneously develop its own mythos about the legend of Boggy Creek or the, the Uberu monster or all these things. And it was used by local people to keep people away. I would like to see the park service at Stanley Park try to use coyotes to deter people from 4 a.m. bush parties. <laughs> these Give them a badge. These mythical badge. creatures so, that they call the coyote. Yeah. I mean, yeah, all the pictures yeah. I've seen are Chupacabra coyotes. I don't think they exist myself. Yeah, yeah, they, they're <laughs> they walk really funny. They walk really funny. So yeah. one thing I find interesting is, you know, if, if coyotes have been living in the same coyotes for 10 years, uh, you know, either either the coyote behavior has changed or human behavior has changed. And you, if we look at the amount of people that are recreating outdoors, especially during COVID, that's gone up substantially. So in, you know, for angling and, and, and hunting here in Alberta, as well as trail use, uh, you know, we're getting participation rates in order of magnitude higher than we used to. I'm exaggerating completely but at least 33 percent higher than what we had before so if we see more and more people we see them at all hours um, there's more possibilities for coyotes to encounter them and as Valgeist would say there's incremental learning by coyotes there's a testing phase and you know they're nipping they're biting and and this is an issue um, the the more pressing question is you know what do we do about it and as lee said we can either remove coyotes one way or another, or we can essentially train people how to live with them. I think the latter will only work to a given degree and where human wildlife conflict will be such that uh, the risk to human beings and the risk to 
you know, some human beings, such as those that are vulnerable, like kids, if that goes beyond a given threshold, my prediction is, is that um, our tolerance will quickly wear thin and, uh, and, and we'll use one way or another in order to reduce the yeah. density coyotes there. Well, Matt, you left out the third possibility of aversive conditioning on these coyotes and making it yeah, really unpleasant enough. for them to run into humans. When they see human, they should act like a wild animal and run for their lives because they could either be harvested or they could be turned into a fur coat or they could be removed from the population one way or the other. It's it, They do that with elk. They do that with bears. They do that with other things. I'm, I wonder what the hesitation for so doing it to coyotes would they, be. Um, the book Coyote America, written by Dan Flores, um, in the opening parts yeah. of his book, um, he talked about th- the relationship between coyotes and humans in North America and basically said this whole thing of coyotes living in human settlements is not new. That is the history of the coyote and, and people in North America. They co-evolved together and coyotes always lived with people. Um, so they obviously found the balance of ducking in and out. They didn't get domesticated, but they also didn't, you know, catch the, the, the ire of, of, you know, ancient North Americans and they didn't wipe them out. So, so they've learned themselves how to coexist their difference of coexistence is probably quite different than ours obviously um because a little nip and a bite you know scratch here and there is you know telling us something about how to coexist with them but i i found that interesting and then i was reading another story from somebody that's got a program up in edmonton on the urban yeah, the yeah, ur- urban coyotes there. And um, she was speaking to the Stanley Park issue and said, you know, these solutions at the two opposite end of the spectrum, like going in and completely lethally removing all the coyotes or everybody hug and kiss and coexist with all the coyotes, no matter how many of them, both those two ends of the spectrum are basically go, the, the train goes off the rails with either of those. Um, and she talked a little bit about like the ecology of coyotes, how under heavy um, lethal removal, you can actually like, they can respond to that, you know, counterintuitively and, you know, backfill voids and increase pup litters and all this, all this kind of stuff. And lethal removal could make your problems worse. Yeah, good. Colleen's been doing this for quite some time and, and she has some, you know, very good research and, I remember talking to Lee and, and Colleen a number of years ago, and she identified typologies of different coyotes. There's nocturnal coyotes that have learned to, you know, slink in and out uh, from the shadows at night. Uh, they'll eat everything from bubblegum wrappers to, you know, fried chicken pieces and live quite well and live the longest. Those that are quite bold and venture out in the daytime and out on roads and so forth usually don't last as long because they get hit or removed or, you know, one way or another. Um, But I think Colleen has advocated for a number of deterrent measures, that aversive conditioning that Lee spoke to a little bit earlier. And, uh, you know, not unlike that of being around bears, appear big, uh, carry a stick, uh, speak loudly. Uh, She's advocated the use of a slingshot if possible, you know, and, uh, a number of those techniques. If everyone bought into that and we were very consistent in terms of our behavior, I see that mm. would, would work. But 
given the diversity of coyotes and their own personalities, there's some inevitably, I think, that are going to be so problematic that we're, we're, we have no choice but to remove them. Yeah, every every canid, every bear, every raccoon I've ever seen had, will push the edge of the opportunity. They, they have an internal yeah, cost-benefit analysis. Yeah, they exactly. have a risk-reward system. And, and so, if you know, when I see wild raccoons, they run for their lives. When I see raccoons in the city, they basically look at me and give me the middle finger. Uh, they, they completely <laughs> ignore me. Uh, they've been habituated, and they've learned that running is, takes energy, and staying still might get food, or at least it won't interrupt their garbage du- dive, dumpster diving. So, so it's just a, it's a funny, different world. These coyotes are urbanized coyotes. They're almost like a, they behave like a different species from a coyote in Wyoming that when it hears a truck two sections over, it runs for its life. These, these coyotes are, have learned that people do not pose a threat. And now the, now the game is up. They can push as hard as they want. They can nip with no negative repercussions. So it, they're, they're a bizarre animal. We, we've trained them to be bad actors in some ways, inadvertently trained that's, them to be bad actors. Uh, they might see it differently. It's, it's working to their advantage, right? But in, um, yeah. Yeah. the author's name was Shivik. I can't remember if his first name was Dan, um, wrote the book, uh, The Predator Paradox. And we, in the sections he was talking about coyotes, he was referring to, Lee, what you were saying, where... When it comes to the the whole thing of um, livestock depredation and coyotes, um, a bunch of research I, I gather that had been done in the U.S. showed that a lot of times the vast majority of the depredation, even though your coyote population is high, is only done by a couple of individuals. And you can be in there whacking coyotes and nothing in your depredation rates changes because if you don't get that individual with the personality yeah, of the, the behavior one. and um maybe that's what some of the research in stanley park is going to be able to do is to, you know is to identify that and my recommendation is, is is i think the bc conservation officer service who handles all of this should should go to um um sketch artists so when somebody's bitten, they should actually <laughs> do like a drawing um, and then use the scientists' trail cameras. And then when they can identify, that's clearly the, 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 the perpetrator in the picture. Um, then you send in a team to remove them. You know, what, what's interesting is here in Alberta, we have a response matrix for uh, wildlife, human or wildlife, livestock, negative interactions. And depending on the level of interaction, whether it's you know, fatal or not, uh, will issue a response that's embedded in policy. And to do that, we try as much as we can single out the perpetrator. Yeah. So you know whether or not that's the right bear, or whether or not those are the right pack of wolves or coyotes. You know, either moving or a cougar, for example. Well, generally, depending on the nature of the infraction, to use the uh, criminal terminology, if the offender, uh, you know, um, hazes or, or, or kills, you know, one particular kind of livestock, then we'll generally move them quite far distance. But if it's a second offense, then we'll euthanize depending on, you know, what the species is and what the level of risk yeah. may be. But we generally you know, try to find the individual. 
both of y'all have re- referenced something that's pretty interesting. I'm just thinking some people might not realize that within a wildlife population, there are personalities of individuals. They're they're on a spectrum from neophobic, which means they're afraid of new things, to neophilic, which means they're drawn to new things. It's true of people as well. We have different uh, comfort, fear, paranoia levels, and coyotes are no different. Some of them are very assertive, aggressive by nature. They made they were you know, raised a bunch of siblings or something, and they had to fight hard. But, but there are true personality traits. And it, it was late in my biology career that I was introduced to this concept. And it was sort of novel to me. And it, it, it makes perfect sense when you think about it. But there are aggressive bears, and their mat will deal with what's called a good bear sometimes, a grizzly that spends five years grazing on a hillside right there at Hinton, never bothers a person, avoids livestock, eats vegetation and carrion mostly, never causes a problem. Other bears get real pushy, and uh, they're, they're assertive, and they, they're a problem from the get-go. Coyotes must be no different, in my opinion. Sounds like people. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, one of the stories, uh, you know, kind of the themes and stories that I, I, I cover across Canada, which, which seems to be growing in popularity in, in sort of the, the mainstream media, the popular media, is stories about poaching fines, people being convicted under various provincial or territorial, you know, wildlife or, or fisheries acts. And, and it's kind of interesting because, you know, I don't recall hearing too much about this, like, like, you know, even five years ago, it just never seemed to be in the newspaper. And we do see more stories. And there's one that caught my attention here recently. And it's a uh, fellow from Nanaimo on Vancouver Island. And I'll kind of go through what what they're dealing with here. So since 2008, DFO has got 15 separate files on this guy. Um he was arrested in March of 2020 for illegally fishing crabs uh, on the west coast of, of Canada. Um, he was involved in a high-speed boat chase uh, after when, they, when they caught him for uh, illegally fishing crabs. He's faced judicial penalties, jail time, a 22-year ban from fishing in Canada and the U.S., as well as monetary fines. Eight more charges were laid against this fella on May 31st for illegally harvesting sea cucumbers. There is claim documents filed with the courts right now that's claiming that he fraudulently applied for a grant and was in 2020 and got $80,000 from the Native Fishing, Fishing Association and he went by a, a pseudonym name. and. Uh, I guess claimed he was an indigenous fisherman and got through the system and got 80 grand. So the civil forfeiture office in British Columbia has filed with the Supreme Court uh, at the uh, in June actually, and they're wanting to seize this guy's home on Gabriola Island and 1.3 million dollars worth of cash that he's got in the bank. I'm like. If so, I had $1.3 million a, in the bank, I wouldn't be illegally catching sea cucumbers. No. <laughs> this, this, uh, this kind of individual exists out there. In the book Game Wars by, by Dave Hall, he talks about super, pre, super poachers that, that you can deter most people in the population with fines or threats or confiscations, but there are some that no matter what you do, 
they're going to go back. They're putting it to the man. They're, they feel they have a personal right. Their, their belief is they have a right to do whatever they want. And there are the occasional oddballs like that that, I mean, it, it's almost a form of mental illness. It's it's interesting because it's very much analogous to our discussion regarding personalities and <laughs> in coyotes and predators and very much the same. We're going to have bad bad actors you know, amongst Catch all me species. If you, can. you know, I think one of the things that this highlights um, as you know maybe the underlying factor or or driving a lot of other stuff, but I've heard this about like sockeye salmon uh in the fraser river system like they're endangered but it's like one of the most sought after most valuable fish is the underground market for that fish is becoming an illicit trade like it's it's ounce for ounce it rivals like a lot of the drugs so the 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 people that are involved you know are are doing this because there's a lot of money to be made by just like the the ivory thing right like there's crabs and there's salmon and these various you know um seafood resources that are declining that are becoming more and more valuable because the demand's there and it's fueling these these you know almost like drug kind of traffickers and harvesters yeah what oh the the complexity that's involved in terms of wildlife prosecutions and all of the players involved and you know i know of cases such that you know people would be poaching moose in order to bait black bears to harvest their Mm -hmm. gallbladders sell to gangs in exchange to other gangs for you know drugs and let the complexities begin from there. And, you know, this is, I think, more significant than, than we think. And I remember, you know, in the 70s and 80s when we had the rarity amongst, you know, falconiforms and, you know, I, I believe, yeah, and uh, falcon, falcon chicks and falcon eggs were a hot commodity and worth many, many thousands of dollars and uh, well worth the risk of some ne'er-do-wells in order to traffic in that and bear gallbladders uh, were of that as well. And with the uh, development of things such as Cialis and Viagra, I think those have tapered off somewhat, and now there's a new market and this high-ed specialty types of seafood. As, as things become rare, it's just an economic principle, the scarcity function. Things that are scarce, whether it's diamonds or, or peregrine falcons or or rare fish caviar they uh they bring out the worst in us this people want to get some before they're gone or get be special because they have something that's not common in in society and we can think our way through that i wanted to speak a little bit for a moment about a one of matt's colleagues and one of my former graduate students jordan walker who did his thesis basically trying to figure out why fishermen cheat and lie it's kind of a joke that fishermen go fishing come home with a they, they lie about how big the fish they caught we all maybe exaggerate a little bit, but it's, um, he, he said the theory of, of deterrence to keep people, make people honest and not to cheat, lie, overfish things comes down to three different principles. The first being that, that you worry about what my chance of being caught is. If there's no chance, then there's really not much of a deterrence. 
The second thing is how big will the fine be or the penalty be? And the third one is uh, how quickly will it be enforced? In this guy's case, the fines have gotten very big, but the rapidity of enforcement are very protracted. Now, to make this more relevant, I think of it in terms of speeding. If I'm driving down the, the freeway and I think I'm never going to get caught here, I've never seen a cop here in my life, I, I might push the limit. If I see one policeman, it changes my entire calculation. Or if I know that it's my third speeding ticket and I'm going to lose my license, I'm going to slow down. These things work on all of us. It's, this is not distinct from our earlier discussion about coyotes. It's a cost-benefit calculation that we do either explicitly or subtly. Coyotes do it. We do it. Poachers do it. Mm. That's a really good analysis, Lee, and, and very good description of Jordan's work. I, I am quite amazed at the extent and the magnitude of fines that are proposed uh, to be laid against this individual and collected. I've never heard of anything as high as $1.3 million being seized, as well as, you know, a $600,000 home uh, and a 20-year fishing ban. You know, that's something, and it's very significant. And that in itself, if that acts as one-third of the ter- deterrent value to others that have the same sort of mindset, I would I'd like to see that um, move forward. And we, many of the complaints that we have amongst a variety of different user groups here is, you know, you trespass, it's a slap on the wrist, a few hundred bucks. Um, you have one more bird than what is, what is allowed on your limit, slap on the wrist, a few hundred dollars. But if you know that, you know, your income, your savings, your home, your vehicle, uh, and the future of your hunting and angling can be limited significantly, you may think yeah. twice. And one of the real drivers there, Matt, is people will give up a truck, give up a gun. But if you tell them you're banned from hunting for life, that rips at their very personal identity. I mean, think think how that would chill your blood. Say you can no longer hunt or fish for the rest of your life. I mean, just go ahead and kill me now. (laughs) Yeah, I I honestly would have a really difficult time with that um, because so so much of my life is around those activities. I wouldn't know what else to do. I'm not going to take up macrame. Yeah, I mean, it's different for us because we're doing it the legal way. You tell somebody they're going to take their, you know, hunting license away and they're right back out there next year doing the same thing without a hunting license. It's, uh, yeah, for sure. Now, kind of along this line of, you know, the illicit uh, trade and stuff, I I saw uh, an article where, Canada's federal government is contemplating on bringing in uh, well they're they're asking for public comment but they're looking at potentially developing a national policy or strategy around um, helping curb the ivory trade in Canada Uh, I understand that Canada accounts for what was it like four percent of of the the ivory trade Um, people that are um, sort of in that field, conservation field, like of, of the illicit wildlife. I think they're uh, one of the, the articles I read was saying like, you know, 4% is probably um, way underestimating it. Uh, it's low, usually worldwide. It's like 4% means 10% or it means 
40%, and they feel that Canada could actually be, um, because of this low number, things are getting underneath the radar screen, so it, we could actually be a pretty big conduit for a significant portion of the global ivory trade. You know, that was kind of the, the flavor of it. So one of the things that um, uh, Federal Minister Wilkinson said that could be possibly considered uh, is the is the ban on trophy imports and I don't know if you guys have been following this down in the states I think it was Connecticut recently yeah. just kind of like you know Im impose that ban and one of my colleague podcasters kind of friends down in the states with um, has a organization called Blood Origins. Um, Robbie Kroger is from South Africa and I've had him on the podcast and you know to learn about this whole African situation and he covers a lot of these stories when these these international bands come up and he's kind of like you know there's a lot of generalities and misinformation about the status of you know um, elephants and these bans on trophy imports that you think are going to help with the conservation of the species, he'll actually walk you through how they're not, how they're hurting people like, like trackers yeah. and, you know, entire communities and, you know, the, the, the loss of hunting concession lands and how they revert to agriculture. And that could be the loss of, you know, diversity and stuff. And so I, I guess that's a concern um, to see Canada kind of raise that same, um, flag or virtual signal that same thing that we've seen in the UK and in the States recently. Yeah. This is uh, quite an interesting issue because I don't really know what Canada's objectives are other than saying, look, we're 4% of the problem. If we limit the importation or trade in this particular item, we'll be helping with you know, elephant conservation, but what does that really mean? Uh, when we look at the trend in terms of elephant populations, is it as a result of illegal poaching, is it a result of habitat loss, is it a result of diseases, is it a result of drought and nutrition? And, you know, looking at the causal factors in terms of that decline, I think it's important in addressing all of those causal factors because they'll all be working together. In terms of trade, and as you said, uh, and, and looking at the IUCN report on hunting that was published a number of years ago, the benefits to many of the local communities within Africa as a result of uh, legal hunting is significant. Um, will this ban affect the um, welfare of some of these communities or not? Um, I don't know the extent that it may or may not do that, but if we are going to entertain any sort of um, ban on this particular item, um, we better darn well know what the objectives we have in mind. Is it related to population stability? Is it related to recovery? Is it related to, you know, uh, stemming the trade, the illegal trade of wildlife? Is it an ideological principle? And, and what sort of effect will it have? Will it be damaging? There are so often unintended consequences to these sorts of actions. We don't have to look very far beyond our own polar bear importation bans. Uh, the, the trophy hunters were not allowed to take the hides uh, across the, the Canadian border into the United States. Um, it, it didn't do anything for, for bear mortality. 
it did lower the value and really put a hardship on some of the Inuit communities that used dog sleds to hunt them with. And, and they still take the same number of bears. In fact, they take a different demographic size and age bears now, but not just the occasional large male boar uh, uh, polar bear. The other compounding factor with the ivory ban is that there is a, a legitimate trade in, in walrus ivory and artisans in the far north that trade in that and how are they going to work this around? Yeah. And then, of course, there's a residual backlog of existing uh, ancient ivory that's certified. It exists on some people's piano keys. If you have an ivory-handled revolver or a, a, a uh, ivory bead in one of your rifles, all of a sudden the rifle can be confiscated under certain circumstances because you are traveling cross borders with ivory. It's just not a simple thing. I have a, a nagging suspicion that these are well-intentioned bands that are coming from uh, groups of people that uh, are very maybe sentimental towards wildlife and really want to do what's right and best for them for their population stability, but they might not know the long, far-reaching implications. I've traveled through Africa uh, seven or eight times now on work and on pleasure, and to see uh, dying elephants is a tough thing, but there are young calves that, in Chobe that, uh, Reserve that can't make it to the foraging grounds and back to water, and they expire because of overpopulation. To have a, a threatened or endangered species that's overabundant in certain areas is a strange management problem, not unlike the bison in, in, uh, in Champagne Asiac up in Yukon. They, they're, sure, across Canada there are threatened species, but there they're overpopulated. And the tools you use in a carefully regulated hunt are what they use to lower population. The same would apply to dense concentrations of elephants that are destroying their habitat, threatening people's livelihoods, and actually sustaining a high mortality of their own from lack yeah. of forage. Africa is, it's almost, for me personally, is almost beyond comprehension you know, when we start talking about these conservation and, and the role of hunting in, in Africa, social economics, you know, aspects of it, even the conservation aspects of it, um, I, I, I really don't take a position other than, you know, all I know is it's not the same everywhere. The conservation status of the species, right. if you just say elephant, it is not the same everywhere in Africa. No. Um, I remember when we had Robbie Kroger on the show, he's like, there's you know, we talk about uh, giraffe and hunting giraffe and how the public is outraged by that. And there's like five subspecies of giraffe in Africa, all the way from one of the ones up in the, um, you know, the, the desert region. And, and so that combined with a picture I saw one time of the continent of Africa that had about half of the other continents on the planet could fit inside the continent of Africa, like all of yeah. North America, China, India, and Australia, and part of the, you know, Europe all fit yeah, in there. Yeah, we talk about yeah, it. Yeah, like, like it's oh, a elephants country. in Africa. Yeah. And I'm always like, okay, hang on a second here, you know. So I hope Canada doesn't go down the path, you know, like we saw in, I think it was Connecticut or something, or Vermont or whatever, that was, it was just sort of like, nope, this is going to save elephants and ban the trophy imports. And, we love simple, simple answers. But yeah. can you imagine a person in Africa trying to get their head around Canada's dilemma of our threatened, endangered 
uh, woodland caribou here, and yet there might be 220,000 of them barren ground on the far north that are a sustainable, harvestable population in good years anyway. There are nuances and intricacies to that that are not going to be understood by your average Zimbabwean. Absolutely, absolutely. You you have a trouble with what? (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's this really bizarre story. I covered it uh, last year. Um, Always the you're you're living there now, Lee. All the weirdest stories always seem to come out of the lower mainland in British Columbia especially Vancouver Island. I don't know what's in the wall. I don't know. That's because yeah, Lee's he's going to fix it all. This is why we've done this. They brought me in because I would add to the weird stories, I suspect. So in the, the Esquimalt and Oak Bay area um, outside of Victoria, um, they got a deer problem and they didn't like the idea of lethal removal. So they started that, contraceptive program um, a couple of years ago uh, capturing them and doing the surgery on them and so I, I just uh, a listener from the hunter conservationist podcast who lives there sent sent me this this little story but so over the course of the summer they're out um, tagging um, deer uh, to basically get ready for uh, catching a hundred more in September and October and um, doing the immunocontraceptive um, vaccine and doing boosters on the ones that they've already done before. Uh, you know, I, I just, this, I have a very strong position on this concept, but I'll see what you guys think. You know, we, we often talk about we often talk about first world problems, (laughs) but now we're talking first world solutions. And this is, and and as a wildlife manager, I, it just, I can't help but laugh because I can just imagine the amount of expense and the effort and the people power that is sunken into this project. And from what I understand, it takes two particular you know, treatments or doses, if you're having an oral, um, you know, uh, contracept- contraceptive, but did you say that they actually operated and well, um, on, on some of the dose? Maybe these aren't, maybe these were all of the oral vaccines. There was, uh, maybe when I first covered this story, but I was, I was digging into some of the other research where they were doing, um, doing the actual ovarian surgeries on deer. And it, that might've right. been the one that was done in New York state. Um, that basically kind of came out and said it was a right. dismal failure. Um, yeah, I, I, I can't you, imagine. What you talked about here, three money is the answer, really, because they did it in Fire Island, New York. Uh, as you know, an island situation, tame deer, habituated to humans, just like our coyotes, eating potato chips out of people's hands, high population, bad body condition. They did it on Angel Island, California, the same thing, trap and remove and try to do uh, the PZ, PZZP uh, uh, contraceptive. And it just wore everybody out. They just ran out of funds, resources, and patients said, to heck with it, we can't do this. It's, it's breaking the bank. Uh, the deer are going to outbreed us. The, you know, Nature never sleeps in this regard, and our coffers are limited. It, and this is they went back to culling on these islands. Islands act a little bit different from an open population on the mainland. I, I will acknowledge that. 
And if you did have unlimited resources, it'd be possible to immunize yeah. every enough deer on the island. But you not only have to do it once, you got to do it for generations to maintain this. And not many people have the staying power. Not many groups have the staying power or the coffers to pull this off. So I wish them the best of luck. Uh, I hope they don't catch COVID from these deer while they're putting their snouts right up behind. <laughs> and, and even then, population level effects uh, w- would occur only if you're able to limit the reproductivity rate in adult females to 0.4 fawns per female. To do that in a deer population, many people just don't understand that, is incredible. And when times are good and food is rich, you're looking at fecundity rates of one, one and a half that are regularly found in deer. So to limit that, you really, really have to hammer the population significantly in terms of your contraceptive efforts and get to 70% of the females in order to affect any sort of population change. And that population change isn't immediate. So you'll still have a number of, of deer in the area. Those deer aren't reproducing. I don't know what sort of you know behavioral changes are going to take place if they're mating, they're going through the rut every year, yet there's no does uh, that are that are becoming um, you know pregnant and and throwing fawns. I I have no idea. But all I know is it's it's just a it's an extravagance. That's a good way to put it. It's it's mm-hmm. not a close it's not a closed population either. You've got a, a fairly large island there. Yeah. And let's say you succeed in creating a, a, a deerless area. You've got a bit of a vacuum and you've got ice cream plants all about. Uh, other deer will find that, will move in. There's a, a natural gradient of, of ideal free distribution, how these animals will will uh, uh, distribute themselves on these islands. So they're going to have to expand their efforts or put up a deer-proof fence uh, yeah, we, to, to have any yeah. detectable effect. And we often talked about you know, carrying capacity, and there's many misconceptions and myths around carrying capacity, but the resources within towns, when you don't have the natural levels of predation, you have a lot of tolerance towards these animals that are occurring in town until someone gets, you know, into a serious car accident and there's a human-related fatality, then more extreme measures usually get involved. So to have the same unproductive deer occurring in this and living to a ripe old age of 20 um, is going to be really, really uh, hard to do, especially when you have, you know, deer moving into these uh, into these municipalities over time. And Lee said, there's no fence. You're going to get some immigration. Yeah. Well, clearly, if, if they're not going to allow hunters to help them with this problem, and it seems that there's little appetite in the urban areas for that or the suburbs, we have a bunch of coyotes in, in yeah. uh, Stanley Park that might be happy to, to step yeah, in and to help out. to let them onto the ferries and, and, and tra- transport, yeah. them, transport yeah. them over yeah. there, so that would work. When I first covered this story... We can wave their, wave their ferry costs. <laughs> when I first, yeah, wave the ferry costs, yeah. Uh, okay. Let them through on the long weekends. When I first covered this yeah. story, you know, one of the, my perspectives, the angles that I, I came at this as... You know, hunting gets so much criticism in the social public discourse now about the moral and ethical aspects and humane aspects of of hunting, you know, and the various reasons why we do it in the different species. But here we have a situation where these animals' ability, wild animals' ability to procreate 
is what life on planet Earth is about. And as you guys know, whether you are a plant or an insect or a marine animal or a terrestrial mammal or whatever, millions of years of evolution in every cell of these animals' body is about surviving and replacing yourself and perpetuating the species. That is life on earth. And we've decided as a society to step in and disrupt the very fabric of life by trying to force wild animals to, to take contraceptives and become sterile and not do what they're genetically programmed for. And it's like, you know, whether or not that'll spawn like some sort of genetic freak monster, you know, deer with, you know, nature's trying to find a way around this or whatever. But I just find the, the ethical, moral ethical aspect of what we're actually doing to a wild animal and the fact that nobody was challenging that or having that conversation about it yet right down the street at the coffee shop on vancouver island they're asking you to sign a petition because people think that trapping wolves on vancouver island or in british columbia is morally and ethically not in tune with what society's values are today it's just it's it's a really bizarre story for me yeah, and there's there's an arbitrary feeling amongst many people that well at least they're not being killed, um, but at the same time, they're not natural. They're not, you know, they're functioning as yeah. They're not functioning. You're actually debasing the value of their wildness uh, exactly. by doing this. And, and I think if and, the deer could speak, and, they would probably say exactly the same thing Lee did. If you took my hunting license away just kill me now. I think the deer would say, hey, you take away my ability to replace myself multiple times over my lifetime, you might as well just kill me now because my purpose here is done. The, yeah. yeah. There are there are cultures all around the world that would find this grievously offensive. I mean, we, we actually see it in Canada where the Council of Chiefs and, and Yukon and Inuit, uh, and I'm sorry, uh, Yukon and Northwest Territories talk about catch and release as being a very questionable activity it's playing with your food is the common yeah. uh, way of putting it catch what you need to eat kill it eat it use it respectfully and then put up your fishing gear yeah. and just leave, bird leave watch for a while. otherwise leave them alone uh, yeah i mean mm-hmm. that's that's an art that's a debatable topic here and that'll set a lot of people's teeth on the edge especially the serious trout fishermen i, I don't mean to propose that but yeah. there there are groups that that advance that as a theory. Now, I think what you said earlier, Mark, about us getting in there and messing with nature's natural procreation goes back to something we talked about in a podcast earlier about the the deerness or the tigerness or whatever. When you take these animals out of context, you basically make them a Franken a Franken deer. Uh, they they don't they don't exist for any purpose, and you've reduced their meaning and you've basically diminished them pretty drastically. Um, so it's it's our will being imposed on nature, and it's yeah. it's really questionably questionable ethics. In it's many a ways. very very selfish, I think, uh, ideology. the The other side of the coin, however, is, uh, you know, conversely, do we believe that hunting in a in a municipal environment like that would that be effective at hazing deer? Well, yes and no. Yes, if you do it safely if you do it with great intensity and if you repeat that intensity for years and years and years and like coyotes and removing coyotes and euthanizing other uh, carnivores there's a density dependent effect 
you remove them, you create an ecological vacuum, you have rich resources occurring within town, and they'll repopulate very quickly. And then it moves into this aspect of uh, hazing these animals and having that negative stimulus of them being around town. It's a really yeah. interesting conundrum. Well, you know, not only killing, you don't have to kill all the animals. You can change these little hooved animals on Vancouver Island from acting like domestic goats back yeah. to being deer with the pursuit. There's a concept in ecology called the landscape of fear. And basically, animals that are eternally vigilant, as they have to be in nature, burn a lot of calories just being alive and being alert. Deer that live a, a easy existence, and possibly coyotes as well in Vancouver on, on Stanley Park, they become the first step towards domesticated. They don't have predators. They don't worry about people. They have plenty of good plants. They, they get, quote, lazy. That's, I know that's, that's an anthropomorphic term, but they, they basically lose their sense of wildness and vigilance. And they don't burn as many calories. They have higher reproductive rates, the higher survival rates. Uh, it's a pretty unnatural animal you see walking through the suburbs of Victoria these days. Uh, it's, it, they're not behaving like normal deer. Kind of like some people in downtown Victoria. <laughs> not, be, not behaving okay. like normal British Columbians. <laughs> <laughs> that's our that's our rural, rural uh, urban divide okay. there. So in British Columbia, you'll you'll get that one figured right, out. So. Right, right. <clears throat> well, they they'll probably talk to me talk about me as being the oddball redneck walking <laughs> through downtown that I'm not a natural <laughs> entity. Um, Mark, Mark, before we sure. leave this topic, a number of years ago, Kimberly had a um, municipal problem around deer, and I know that there's some non-lethal methods that were implemented how's that program coming along? um they both cranbrook and kimberly here uh in the east kootenai southeastern bc have pretty still pretty serious beer problems um a colleague of mine jesse zeman uh works with the bc wildlife federation um took a bunch of the data from these communities and the calls that they've done and the various things and basically like there is no <clears throat> pattern in the data at all it's like the call would go up and the population in town would go up and they'd stop the call and the herd would drop and it, and it was just like it was an absolute mess um, as far as what was working and what wasn't working um, deer populations are you know drastically going up and down from uh, year to year and uh, there just seems to be no like no clear path of anything working really mm. they're probably being driven by some factor that's just not being measured yeah. i mean in alberta we, we always resort to saying it's the weather but here it could be parasite loads it could be nutritional levels it could be frequency of rain it, there are lots of other things and we don't really fully understand the way deer communicate with each other uh pheromone and scent marking wise there are suppressive activities there are uh, invitations, their their territoriality. It's it's very subtle and complex in, in at least in white tails that I'm more familiar with, and uh, we just haven't scratched the surface of that stuff yet. They are, they they hear tunes yeah. that we don't hear. And, and I think it, 
those regular sort of oscillations. The, the other big problem Sorry, is, is, is just sort of the reliability of the baseline data, you know, the actual counts. This isn't being done with the greatest level of rigor. So, you know, you may have had 100 volunteers mm -hmm. come out this year and go, oh, there's 200 deer in the community of Kimberley. And next year it was cold and like 12 people came out and they only saw nine, you know, or something like that. And, you know, so it's, yeah. there's, yeah. there's yeah. you got to take, I guess, you know, you know the monitoring aspect of these urban deer programs with uh you know sort of a grain of salt because there's some sketchiness in the in the data yeah or or as we say you have to take it with a salt block <laughs> yeah. um, the same the same is true for christmas bird counts and other things but there's the law of large numbers if you have hundreds of thousands of observations each year the data tends to sort itself better if you have those kind of fluctuations of of, of citizen science effort it makes it really, really hard. You have to normalize the, the effort somehow. I normalize, I mean, divide by the number of people and things like that to, to make that data yeah, comparable makes sense. year to year. Makes sense. Um, yeah, kind of sort of on this moral, ethical sort of treatment of wildlife, this is uh, uh, something that I've covered before in different um sort of forums that, I, that I've talked about or infographics that I've put out. The use of household domestic rodenticides is a really interesting topic to me, again, because when we look around North America, like the, the millions of wild animals that eat this stuff around homes that die, the number of off-target wildlife that die or are, are carrying, um, you know, a body burden of, you know, the anticoagulants in them never really seems to hit the public's attention as being a large scale, massive, unethical treatment of wildlife. But one story comes up about hunting and it's like every, everybody knows about it. And yeah. So just recently here in British Columbia, um, the BC government announced a uh, moratorium, uh, 18 months, um, on the sale of household rodenticides because of <clears throat> the potential risks to, to wild animals. And digging into the scientific literature, like there's been studies done like various places, you know, around North America, and it's pretty staggering, like between... 40, 50, and up to 80% of um, species that were tested, like animals that died, especially birds of prey, that died, that were tested, were carrying household rodenticides in their body. Um, California banned the hunting of cougars back in like the 70s, and then they had a little one one year in the 80s they had a hunting season then it was then it was banned again and their the numbers of depredation permits and the depredation rates um, from cougar kills in California have skyrocketed and one of the studies I read said that of all of the depredation cats that were killed under permit it was like 94 percent of the cougars killed for, for livestock depredation were also carrying levels of rodent uh, rodenticides toxic rodenticides in their bodies um, prop, uh, I think mostly ends up in in the liver and so what the what 
I deduced from that is these cats are not being hunted and they're not being killed. They're becoming problem around hobby farms and farming operations. Um, and before they're killed, they're picking off uh, the rodents and rats and mice and raccoons and all that kind of stuff that the farmers are putting the poisons out that are dying from, um, from, from this and it's getting into wild animals. And so it, it just, it always blows my mind how those, you know, sort of things were just carrying on under the radar screen. But in British Columbia, there's been a group uh, what are they called? Rodenticide Free BC have been kind of pushing this campaign and pushing the government for for quite a few years. And uh, I would have to say that this announcement that was made by uh, Minister Heyman about a week or two ago was probably a result of that uh, that pub that public campaign. So, wow, that that's that's a really fascinating thing. It, Everybody will have a different take on that, depending on how much you love or hate rats and mice, I suppose. Uh, if you lived in a house infested with mice and had to do something about it and weren't allowed to use rodenticides, you might see it differently. I wasn't really aware of the degree of, of, uh, of pesticide leakage into the natural system. That, that's a very troubling thing. In many cases, the, the, the warfarin that's used is the exact same chemical as Coumadin that my father was on for many years for heart <laughs> yeah. blood thinner. You know, so... Uh, we might see a lot of thin-blooded cats. Maybe maybe things will bleed out a little easier. They just nick themselves on a barbed wire fence and keel over with a long blood trail. I'd, I'd but, also I'd, sorry. Go ahead, Lee. Well, no, I was, I was just I wanted to say that we we will fix one problem of leakage of this up the food chain. We may create another problem though with exotic pests like rats. Yeah. That we have a lot of rats, especially in the seashore areas of here, and rats on on ground nesting birds and other things. Where do you want your mortality? Do you want it on invasive uh, uh, small omnivores like rats, or do you want it on uh, owls that are feeding these things to the chicks? My hope is we'll find a rodenticide that is target-specific and doesn't have this bioaccumulation effect up the line. Or has a relatively short half-life. Right. And, yeah, and, and quite often here, um, you know, being in Alberta, a rat-free province, uh, you know, we have a specific rat patrol and a program that will go and, and find this. We also have a significant amount of effort sunken into an invasive species program. Uh, so I, I certainly wouldn't want to see an, an influx of, uh, of rodents that would potentially threaten species. But these, from what I understand, the use of these uh, insectic or sorry, these uh, um, toxicants would be, would be, on uh, domestic, you know, um, species for the most part, and and to be able to have that level of toxicity that's quite persistent, affecting raptors, affecting other species, um, links to declines in species of amphibians, which uh, which are quite interesting in terms of, of of how widespread something like that may be. Um, that that really you know, begs the question over whether or not we continue this process. And what is the alternative to the process? Yeah, barn cats. I imagine barn cats are having a really tough time with these rodenticides as well. If you want to find somebody's liver in grave jeopardy, go look at your average barn cat in a poisoned barn because they're catching, eating these compromised mice and rats nonstop. 
you know, it's not time, this isn't the place to talk about it, but at some point I would love to hear a, a discussion of the use of these uh, a pesticides, which like glyphosate is a pesticide they use across across a lot of regenerate, forestry re- regeneration situations. At some point to get a pro in here talking about that would be yeah, fascinating. Because we did, we did bro- an episode on that last year yeah, with you, a, uh, you, a fellow out of Prince George, oh, British Columbia. The fellow from um, Prince George. A, um, yeah, um, that was Pesticide-free BC or, or Stop the Spray BC campaign, if you mm-hmm. wanted to, to Google that. So, um, pretty, I will. I'll look it up. Was, is that the researcher from, from UMBC? Um, that, no, Dr. Um, Dr. Roy Reed and um, Michael uh, Cunningham, uh, both out of UNBC, are kind of um, moose researchers, and they have very strong um, right. sort of, you know, um, positions, professional opinions based on their moose research and, and the impacts uh, of that. So Yeah, the, the tan, tannin loading and, and moose yeah. dying um, on There was a stomachs. researcher, I believe, out of UNBC that was also um, published some stuff last year that was showing the longevity of it in soil and the persistence on plants like blueberries and stuff. So, um, it's not what, uh, Bear and Monsanto was telling us, but, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's mm-hmm. right, right up there, you know, with these rodenticides and stuff. And, um, yeah, I mean, the alternative is, is, um, you know, I know not everybody in a rural setting where it's legal, um, could, properly use you know a 22 um to dispatch these things uh, or a trapper but you know i i think to ask around and you'll find trapper trapper for hire or somebody that can come and you know spend an afternoon yeah. with the 22 and you know and, and get a few things to me that's that's the ethical way to do it um you know the risks of of these off target um deaths and you know and the big thing is is people need to understand rodenticides this is not quick like these are slow agonizing bleeding into the stomach type deaths so it's like it's not humane you know yeah we're back to ethics we're back to ethics again in many ways Rachel Carson had it right the the ecological leverage we can exert with our better living through chemistry, it might improve our welfare a little bit. It's really hard on the environment. It, it leverages all sorts of, uh, again, unintended consequences. And to do full cost accounting of putting out that pesticide, that glyphosate, that DDT, we really need, we, we were reliant on reliable information and research and somebody telling the story accurately and properly. And I understand the difference in positions and, and, um, Interests, often shareholder interests in uh, chemical production is very different from the position that we are presented with. Whether it's by, it's usually it's a it's a corrupted by a profit motive, and we have to be very careful about that. Uh, and, yeah, neutrality, and it's, and it's yeah, and, and it's it's related to much bigger questions as well in terms of industrialization and human population expansion into habitats and the effect on biological diversity and what we're doing in terms of changing or augmenting certain species of wildlife assemblages across landscapes. Uh, We're affecting temperatures, we're loading environments with a number of different toxicants, we're changing and altering habitat consistently, and we're doing so for a number of different benefits. And ultimately, we have to ask ourselves uh, questions as a species as a whole that's both part of and separate from nature is to what degree do we want to sacrifice 
things such as cheap food, uh, you know, walking into Walmart or any of the other big grocers, and the price of calories, um, according to many researchers, um, you know, Michael Pollan, for example, the price of calories is extremely cheap in a highly industrialized society because we we do willingly apply glyphosates, toxicants of all kinds. Uh, we develop landscapes en masse uh, via alteration. Uh, and, and through this process, we're altering climate. Ultimately, you know, are we suffering as a human species as a result of this? Well, many would argue that we're not. Many would argue that our reproductive rates are going up to, you know, uh, we're, we're obviously, you know, quite robust when it comes to caloric intake, uh, our technology. Um, we're not worried about getting the next meal, so we're free to do a whole pile of other things that's benefiting the species. But ultimately, where is that threshold and what are the costs associated with that particular Absolutely. lifestyle? There's one other, one other component you left out there, Matt, and that is the who. While we can actually benefit from the low costs, uh, we can externalize a lot of the repercussions to less developed countries and overseas yeah. folks. So we, we uh, use this privilege. We have the, the best of both worlds, but it's, again, it's a deep ethical question about is it fair or right for us to do this to other populations? Uh, that's a much bigger topic than we probably, than Mark probably <laughs> wanted us to get into right now, but, well, uh, but and we're uh, not going to fix you know, it here. But I think, it, I think as ecologists and conservationists, ultimately, you know, many of the problems that we discuss are around human ecology and and how we as human beings behave and how we interact with nature. And I think one of the biggest issues that human beings, and coming back to Holmes Ralston and the quote that you had in the discussion of him in the last podcast, Lee, is to what degree are we affected by nature? And the definition of natural that you brought up in the last podcast is human beings being separate or nature is deals with processes that are independent of that of human beings. And I think that we need to visualize ourselves as being both part of nature and distinct from nature uh, at the same time in many respects. And as hunters, um, people that live in rural landscape, people that live in cities, people that consume products and reproduce on the landscape, we should all be concerned about these broader matters. And we don't think enough about them. One of the interesting aspects about this rodenticide ban in BC, it, I, I don't know this for sure um, if it had an influence, but the rodenticide free BC campaign um, and petitions and, you know, that signatures and everything that went to the minister, um, I'm, I'm assuming was a driver behind this announcement by Minister Heyman last week. And, and as, as a side point that I wanted, you know, people to be aware of it is two things. Um, a lot of times we discount these petitions, you know, ban the wolf hunt more ter- more, more moratorium, um, you know, all of these and stop waterfowl hunting in Cowichan Bay, like all the various petitions that are going on across the country, you know, um, got to take those seriously because they do reach a level and they do eventually come on to um, politicians, 
you know, radar screens. And in this case, you know, the work that rodenticide free BC has been doing for a long time has culminated in a decision, probably not the exact one that they wanted. Um, but it's an 18 month time frame where experts can probably, uh, from what I understand, are going to dig into um, the literature on these products because I don't think anybody's looked at them for a while and you know what's changed chemically and how much of a threat they are to wildlife so um, yeah that's a message for listeners uh, don't underestimate the power of the petition that you see in the coffee shop yeah. I like it I like this though there's an element to this that we should see more of and that is a sunset clause built into the, the initial uh, ruling that we will take time and evaluate and then make a decision more informed later on. It becomes a natural experiment of sorts. And if the unintended consequences collapse in and rats are running through the streets and people are catching bubonic plague, I think we'll say that was a failure. If we stop seeing dead barn owls and we start seeing more more uh, uh, lynx survival and things like that, yeah, well, then maybe um, it was a good absolutely. thing. But I like keeping the jury out and letting this play itself out and be yeah. a careful observer and make an informed, more totally. permanent decision. The um, the last story that I wanted to see what, what you guys uh, uh, thought of here. So this, um, this research paper is, it's actually a couple of years old. It's not like hot off the press. Um, it was published in the journal Biological Conservation in 2019, and it was called Understanding and Managing Human Tolerance for a large carnivore in a residential system. So it's bears, um, the tolerance of humans uh, yeah. of black bears. And, and so from what I understand, it was, it was one of the first studies that was actually just looking at how humans tolerated these bears in and about like human habitat um, and understanding what, drove people's tolerance or intolerance of the bears was 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 fairly new i think it's a timely kind of a, a topic to come back and visit that because there's been a lot of bear attacks in canada and and north america this year the latest one happened at 10 30 this morning in northern british columbia and a man was mauled by a black bear and he's in serious and unknown condition in hospital you know right now there was, of course, the two fatalities in Alberta, uh, and a... we had a third as well oh, two geez. weeks ago. Mark, uh, we had a um, uh, a young female tree planter that was uh, oh, uh, mauled by a uh, black bear in the Swan Hills area, and, and well, uh, wow. costed her life. That's so sad. So, so the you know this. This paper was uh, sort of, again, like the social side of, of it and kind of, you know, comes back to the coyote thing about, you know, is it coexistence versus, you know, the, the lethal removal. And um, so, so what I gleaned from the paper was um, that people that lived with bears <laughs> um, in the study area, which I think was done in Colorado, the Durango area is where, where this was drawn from. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah. still black bears, you know, not, not our part of the world here in Canada, but still, still people live with black bears. So the people that were living with black bears that perceived that they were getting benefits from the black bears, um, you know, 
enjoyed seeing them, thought that nature was healthy and all this kind of stuff because some, some bears around, they could see them, be all excited to, to see a bear. Um, they had a more positive attitude towards bears and the bear-related interactions. And so they had higher tolerance for the, the encounters or the conflicts that bears, bears were causing. Residents that's, yeah. that perceived the risks uh, of the black bears being around as being more negative, um, people that didn't trust the wildlife managers, these were the people that were, uh, we talked a bit about this on the Hunter Conservationist podcast, sort of the, the, the people whose values towards wildlife are about domination, the utilitarian domination type, type ones, and older people were less tolerant of, of the bears. Now, the interesting thing I got from the paper was that the actual conflicts with bears if that conflict rate changed, Independent, it yeah. didn't change people's tolerance towards the bears. Yeah, fascinating stuff. I, I really like the paper for several reasons. One is they came at it from a purely sociological perspective. I'm married to an environmental sociologist, and I see names like Manfredo, Decker, Vas Vasky. I instantly know that they are well-schooled and human response and they and they were very explicit they talked about this is a study of perceptions and now the perceptions aren't always well grounded they could be religious they could be historical they could be as you say utilitarian and instantly i separate the utilitarian and dominionistic those are two, two different value structures according to keller's typology but those those are it, it was nicely done but throughout the study especially in the conclusions it came about to a well, see, we probably can have bears live here. They, I got the sense they had their mind made up within the study to some degree. But having said that, let's raise the stakes a little bit. And I'm going to pitch it to Matt because Matt eats, lives, and breathes this bear stuff. Uh, that's former grizzly habitat. Grizzlies were throughout that area and down into New Mexico uh, in the 1800s. If they find that they have suitable tolerance for black bears... There is a movement afoot, a small group, that would like to see grizzlies reintroduced to central Colorado. There's good habitat there for them. There's enough parks. There's enough area. But there are a lot of people, and they would have the same problems that Alberta has. So let's see if they put their money where their mouth is, and they really would dial it up to grizzly status. Another variable, and that's an interesting point, Lee, for sure, because if we would say the same thing in many other places, such as in Idaho with respect to the reintroduction of wolves well it lasted for a short period of time and then you know when people started to see negative interactions one-on-one -on -one, then things changed but there's an interesting nuance in this paper and that's if people experience a negative encounter personally then that also changed their perspective but it also reminded me somewhat of of brand blindness as well and I remember my uncle in 1966, he bought an Oldsmobile, and the thing was great. So his next four vehicles were Oldsmobiles, and he hated Fords. And it wouldn't matter all the developments that Ford would have. They're a better vehicle, or if they were better on gas or anything like that. He loved his Oldsmobile, and he lived, breathed, and died with his Oldsmobile until his Delta 88, 19, circa 1976, just up and cacked on him. Then, <laughs> you know... Everything went south, and 
everything is peachy keen if you're living with black bears in a great environment until that threshold is reached and you or someone you know has a really potentially negative consequence things could change but even that and this is a bit of a contradiction is you know quite often when i when i encounter people who have lost loved ones to uh, fatal bear incidents many of them express a very similar sentiment and that is um you know we don't wish any ill will upon this bear and you know we can't you know as a wildlife manager we can't really do that but i i find that fascinating because you know this could happen to someone else yet they're completely focused on that ideology of well it's the primacy the bear was here first therefore the bear deserves to live and you know it's unfortunate and i've lost so and so but this continues and there's some, I, there's some I, deeper I see, yeah there's some deeper psychology there I, the, the stockholm syndrome comes to mind but I, i'm not sure what would really drive someone to say that unless they are just a very big-hearted person that understands bears are doing what bears do and yeah. um I, i'm not sure i'm not sure how that one gets to that i'm not sure i would be that that large-hearted to say that about a bear i'd, I'd want i'd probably want him taken out so it didn't happen to someone else's kid yeah, yeah it's um it's complex, but I think it, it really speaks, you know, this paper and this topic and, you know, in the recent, you know, uh, you know, incidents that, that we were mentioning, um, it, it's really relevant. And the, and the reason I kind of wanted to come back to this is because these things are happening in Canada and North America this year. And, you know, whether or not they're, they're, is an increase, you know, in, in attacks and conflicts or not. I, I don't know. I haven't seen like a, uh, you know, a good robust analysis of it, but you know, uh, ours here are the same, you know, okay. same okay. as years before, but, but the, but the number of fatalities in this okay. one year, okay. no, I, uh, I, I, I get that. Okay. So, but you know, this really then, you know, brings to the forefront of like, what does society want? to do with bears and increasing bear populations and grizzlies, you know, expanding and recovering and pushing into new areas and, um, you know, people wanting, you know, reintroductions and rewilding and all of this sort of thing. And, and it is so complex because of this issue of tolerance you know, and, and mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know if this paper, I yeah. didn't, I don't recall seeing it, but it was it, you know, like what were these percentages of people in, in this area? Was it like a 50, 50 split? Like, I mean, you know, there was tolerance and intolerance. Um, you know, it was like, ha- I would probably like most things were always down to 49 to 50, 51%, you know, of, you know, the, the studies always seem to land on that, but that, that is a, uh, a, a huge, source of conflict in many conf- communities of like what to be doing with poisoning rats or coyotes or addling goose eggs or, or bears yeah. is, yeah. is how people perceive the risks and whether they're tolerant or intolerant. And I don't know, I don't know how people are going to sort this out. 
Well, I know that I would love to live in an area, and I have lived in areas where bears were common. I, I just enjoy seeing them, but I sure wouldn't enjoy the mandate of having to remove all my apples from my apple tree, all my blackberries, uh, make sure my garbage was secured, getting fined if, if my, my garbage can isn't, lid isn't latched. Those are nuisance values I don't care for. I love the animal. I don't like the logistics of living with them so much because they're, they're a pain. The study to get go from grand scale to small scale was a bit anomalous to me that 70% of the respondents had university education. Now, what kind of neighborhood are they really running this survey in? I'm suspecting it's a fairly high-dollar place with, with where people can afford to either fence or whatever. But somebody that's just barely making it wants their kid to play, be able to play in the public park and take their little sister out there and stuff, they might not look as kindly on bears that are habituated and living nearby and all that. Um, I, I have a certain sympathy for people that have to deal with bears and that, that sense of safety. Uh, I'm not one of them, but I understand others are. Uh, I remember, and, and Mark, you probably living, you know, in, in living in Cranbrook, this is much closer to you. I know when I lived in Nelson for seven years, um, it was, it was very much a different thing. We lived two blocks uh, on uphill in Nelson, which is, very close to the edge of town and every year we had to make sure that the gardens were picked we yep. had to make sure that yep. the fruit trees were picked uh, uh you know uh, in uphill i'd have people's apples and tomatoes and everything rolling into my yard uh seven o'clock would roll around in september i made sure my two-year-old alex was in the house and you know we had to live with bears and we had to go through a number of significant ongoing measures in order to reduce that probability and we have to ask ourselves you know, to what degree are we prepared to live with a wild species uh, of, of animal that will alter our lifestyles or become a danger to us in one way or another and if we can achieve a happy balance that's great um, but over the last 15 to 20 years when you have a series of very mild winters and you have a much higher survival rate amongst cervids and other prey species, and you have a subsequent response as per lock of Volterra dynamics in terms of the number of cougars, the number of wolves, the number of coyotes, uh, the number of black bears, the number of grizzlies um, that are increasing across various environments and spreading into occupied lands. When I say occupied, I mean human occupied lands. What is that level of tolerance? And as we see more and more of these negative type uh, of, of incidents occurring, we're going to have to ask ourselves to what degree are we going to tolerate this? And that will be a magical question. Well, one of the things that fascinates me is where people get their information about bears. Just last year, Courtney Hughes, one again, another one of, of uh, Matt's colleagues and me and a couple of others, published a paper on the way the media reports about grizzly bears. Any time a grizzly bear got into the media within the primary core range of grizzly bear occurrence, we analyzed that and coded it. And there's a huge tendency for the media to sensationalize. They love the bear attack. It's very newsworthy. They get a lot of mileage out of that, sell a lot of column inches. Not to bash media too much. They're, they're under the gun right now. But uh, then there was another category of very factual, somewhat dry. And then we classed a, the, the stories as to whether it was the bear's fault, the human's fault, or no fault at all. And uh, 
it's pretty interesting. People, people often ascribe a blame and a fault to the bear. It's, and they use terms like aggressive or uh, uh, ferocious or bloodthirsty. Um, and that colors the way the public sees these animals. It, there's a, real, a lot of room for honest, high-integrity reporting and not just going for the cheap thrill uh, shock value. No, absolutely. Um, I've always told people to be very careful about mainstream media newspapers headlines and stories because they're going for the shock value and if you read a headline and you get hit by uh, an emotional reaction it's because that was designed that way so be very very careful about what you think is true and what you think is fact and what the balance of the story is absolutely man guys um this was a great rundown of a bunch of the trending stories that are going on uh, in Canada over the last month here and a bit. I really appreciate your uh, your take on all of them. Um, I think the listeners are going to enjoy. Yeah, that was was really good. You know what I thought is, as diverse as the number of stories were, there was some convergence and there's some very similar concepts that we could apply to each one and carry them over from uh, one story. Absolutely, to another. I it was and really, really it's good. it's not by but. Bediz- by design, but over the the time that I've been doing the Round Canada podcast, I just let the stories unfold the way that they're coming and they're actually happening. And then you do see common threads through things, um, whether they're from the East Coast to the West Coast or a particular topic. It is just very uh, interesting and um, hope listeners kind of pick up on that. Um, you know what some of those threads and themes are. So it's... Well, Mark, thank you. Thank you for letting me step in and be a, a guest uh, gossip columnist, <laughs> wildlife gossip columnist. If I said anything no, that was, if I said anything that was really out there, wrong or offensive, uh, you can just contact Matt. He's used to fielding <laughs> difficult questions yes. from the public. Yeah, I, I don't get enough with your C, with your CWD. I'll take all of Lee's complaints. That's the solution. Yes, <laughs> guys, thanks a lot. I look forward to doing this again in the future. Thank you so uh, much. Hey, everybody, you're up to date on what's going on around Canada. We'll see you in the next episode.